while. I've had a, a great summer off for the most part, and we've been really encouraged and just blessed in our church. We have so many uh, great men of God in our church and that, that have really brought the Word of God and really given us a, a great, uh, great summer of growth and great summer of ministry. But we're excited to get back into it. If you have a Bible, if you would, turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. We're going to uh, do a series that we're going to start uh, this morning. It's going to be five weeks. And we're just calling it Foundation, a very simple name. And it's basically going to go over the five foundational truths of Protestant Christianity and really of Christianity. And these five were uh, sort of categorized... During the Reformation, as the church, as you know from history, uh, was rolling along and it, it just hit a bad spot and began to be compromised and diluted. Uh, during the Reformation, uh, they basically went, was an effort 500 years ago to recover uh, authentic Christianity. And in doing so, five truths emerged uh, that were essential uh, to Christianity that had been diluted. And the Protestants were bringing them back and bringing the prominence. And each of these are categorized by the Latin word sola, which means alone. And they are these five. Number one is scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. And the last one is for glory alone, which describes the motivations of our life, why we do what we do as believers. So scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone. Faith alone, and one's called solo de gloria for the glory alone, and um, and this is what we're going to pursue these next five weeks. And and what's very interesting about this is that this that what happened in the uh, in the medieval period of time was actually happening from the very beginning of Christianity. Many of the New Testament letters that are written by Paul, by John, by the author of Hebrews, and, and other New Testament writers are writing to correct errors and delusions that had happened. In the church. And what had happened in Christianity was not that people were contradicting these doctrines or, or putting them away. They were basically just diluting them with additives. And it's very easy to do. And it's something we need to watch out for. And what I want to do is kind of recalibrate ourselves around these five truths and, and really uh, look at them. The first one today is, of course, called Solo Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. And what that means is that we as believers have this as our, as our deep conviction in our lives. That God's word, that scripture alone is authoritative. That there is no voice in our lives greater than the voice of scripture. Than the voice of God's word. When the Reformation began back in 1517, Martin Luther went and he nailed 95 theses to All Saints Church in Wittenberg that had 95 things he had deduced from Scripture that were wrong about the church as it was practicing Christianity. Four years later, he is in 1521 before the emperor, Charles V, in a council of church leaders called the Diet of Worms. Sounds very intimidating, doesn't it? How would you like to be in the... You have your life on the line in an interrogation at the Diet 
of Verms. That's what it was called. He's in there and he is basically dialoguing with them for hours about the 95 Thesis, about what he believes, about what Scripture says. And they are insisting that he recant. And Martin Luther was so intimidated, so, you know, threatened and felt so uneasy about what was going on that he asked them, could he sleep on it? They said, sure. So that night Martin Luther slept and the next morning got up before the council and the emperor and he made a very famous statement. He said, unless I am overcome by the testimony of scripture or by evident reason, for I am convicted by the scriptural text that I have adduced and my conscience is bound to God's word and I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither safe nor good here I stand God help me and with that courageous bold confession the Christian faith was revolutionized it began to get recalibrated around this fundamental truth that God's word alone is authoritative. And where it is clear and where it is certain what it says, we as followers of Christ stand on it regardless of what the culture may say Regardless of what it may cost us, we stand on it. Jesus just said it this way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? If Jesus is our Lord, this is our voice. This is what we stand upon. And this, this has many different applications and many different ways we understand it. But I want to just go through three real quick that I think will relate to us and to our world today. Uh, the number one thing I want to say is that God's Word is truth alone. It is true alone. There is no higher truth than God's Word. You see, when we understand the Bible, we understand how Jewish people understood God's Word. Genesis 1 opens up with, the, it says, in the beginning, God did what? He said. And there's an understanding of God's Word that's prevalent in Judeo-Christian understanding is that God's word is the power that created the physical world. He brought it into being. Psalms 136 says that God even exalts his word above his own name. In other words, God puts himself under his own word. You and I do well to do the same. See, God's word is not a set of opinions from people that lived four or five thousand years ago. It is a statement of reality from the creator of reality. It is stating what is. It is like math. Math is not two plus two equals four because a bunch of guys at MIT say so. Two plus two equals four is a statement of reality. I, no, no matter how well-intended or how concerned I might be about how old-fashioned math is becoming, 
cannot say 2 plus 2 equals 5. 2 plus 2 is 4. 17 minus 6 is 11. 8 times 7 is 56, not 55. Pi is derived from the difference between a circle's diameter and its circumference. If you don't mind geometry, that's fine. Pi still exists. <laughs> I understand. It's just a statement of reality. And we need to understand that is what God's Word is. It is stating what is. And there's times in our culture when those statements can be abrasive. Now, I haven't been here this summer, and you guys that have been in our church for a while know I am not one to talk about this, but I think it would be a good time today for a few minutes to talk about the Supreme Court's decision a few weeks ago to legalize same-sex marriages and how the Bible calls us to react to that. Because there's a lot of crazy voices out there. One crazy voice is the, I call it kind of the, the born-again chicken little voice. The sky is falling. Anybody heard that voice? Oh, this, this is it. This is over. America has never done anything like this before. We are shaking our fist at God. Oh, really? This is the first time we've ever shook our fist at God, huh? For 250 years, we enslaved, we literally, our country went to Africa, kidnapped 12 and a half million people, and enslaved them for 245 years. They could be raped, maimed for learning to read or trying to learn to read or write. Their kids could be sold to a whole different state. There's no objection. That's kind of bad. Since 1973, we have aborted almost 60 million babies. It's kind of bad. This is not the first thing America has done that sort of crossed the Judeo-Christian line here. And what we need to realize as Christians, you live in a country that is governed by a document called the Constitution. And the Constitution is geared this way. It is to allow, it is geared to err toward allowing freedom and to be more permissive than forbidding of things. That's how, it's, that's how it is. It's why we have a lot of freedoms to worship and preach and do what we do, but it's not just us who can benefit from those freedoms. You know, and I hear these things about, oh, America is like persecuting Christians now. Are you kidding me? Do you realize there is no country in the world that lets churches exist tax-exempt? We pay no taxes on anything that comes in. No other business corporation gets that privilege. We do. Every donation you make to a church is tax-deductible. Every president that has ever run has claimed, at least claimed to be a Christian. The last two will give you detailed accounts of how they became Christians that are very convincing. I assure you of something. I am not a prophet. I am wrong very often. But in 50 years, 
Christians will not be fed to lions in America. I assure you. Just calm down. <laughs> and we need to not be silly. And, and I really want to, and I, I know I'm being funny, but I really want to warn you to not be manipulated into rants and anger and to just a, a bad posture in your testimony. Because of a lot of guys on a news station that want to manipulate you to feel a certain way or do a certain thing. Don't be stupid. Okay? Don't be chicken little. But the other side I see, and you see this a lot, and, I, and while that side may be ridiculous, I see something going on that I think is very dangerous. And it really comes out of something that was really wonderful. And Christianity has been going on for the last several decades. It's, it's sort of making Christianity culturally, culturally relevant. It's wonderful to be culturally relevant, isn't it? You know what I mean by that? When I grew up in church, we went to church, we sat in pews, we played an organ, it was old, it was boring, and you guys that grew up in church remember when you were a young person, a teenager, you were thinking, like I was thinking, why on earth does anybody do this? I can't wait to get out. And then years ago, churches started becoming cool. We love cool, don't we? Became culturally relevant. They played songs that like sounded good and played like electric guitars and drums and all these cool instruments you see up here. And everybody, you could dress cool. You didn't have to wear a coat and tie to church unless you're, I guess, preaching that day. But, but you don't have to do that. You can wear shorts and flip-flops and you can be really casual and it's really cool and the music's great. And, and we became culturally relevant. We, we, we had cool speakers and, and everything was great and we did lights and even smoke shows, and we can do really cool things and use movies to illustrate points, and we're really culturally relevant. And I love that. It's like great sauce on a good piece of meat. Be culturally relevant. I'm all for that. But there's a commitment to that method of ministry that's compromising in these areas. And you need to be serious and careful about that. I was in Atlanta during the holidays in December and visiting people that help support our church, uh, business leaders, former students, and having meetings with them. And literally in every meeting I had, something came up about a comment made by a megachurch pastor in Atlanta at a leaders meeting with several of his volunteers. And he was asked, by a youth worker who's getting questions from teenagers and middle schoolers. What does our church believe? What's our church's stance on homosexuality? You know what the guy's response was? We don't have a stance. We don't have a stance. We don't have a position on homosexuality. Our position is that sex outside of marriage is a sin. That's a really cool PC response in 2014. What are we going to do in 2015? And, and I'm all for being culturally relevant, but we cannot compromise what we believe. We, we are not going to tell our teenagers and our junior high kids we don't we don't we don't have a position. 
on what the Bible says about sexuality. Are you kidding me? And I understand how well attended that may be. But when we start doing that, here's what happens. I am creating my own religion and using Christianity as a template. That's all we're doing. We're creating a religion where this is okay and this is That is not what we do here. We stand on Scripture. If the culture's mad at us, be mad. We stand with the Word of God. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's really an interesting chapter to read when you get into these issues. It's about 15 verses long. And in there, Paul talks about a situation going on in their church, in the Corinthian church, where there was this deeply immoral thing going on. Listen, when I hear that in churches, evangelical churches in America, husbands are leaving their wives for men they meet in church. Are you kidding me? And we're not horrified by that? And Paul's writing these guys and he's talking about a situation similar to that. He's saying, you guys think this is funny? You're proud of it? You smirk about it? You ought to be horrified. Then he goes on about it. And then later on in the chapter, he talks about how some of them were actually shunning unbelievers because he had told them, hey, you need to separate yourself from sin. And he's going, look, I don't mean shun unbelievers. Don't ostracize yourself from people who don't believe. In fact, he uses the words, you can read three words in I think it's in verse 12. He says, by no means, by no means, not in any way should a Christian shun a non-Christian of any context. He's talking about, but in the church, we've got to be clean. In the church. Listen, if you have a friend who marries a partner who's gay, Listen, if you feel comfortable, go to their wedding. You're not sinning by reaching out to them and loving them. You're not sinning by going to a reception. I'm not saying you should, we don't endorse that. But I'm saying don't ostracize people just because they don't do what you want them to do. That's not what we're about. And that's Paul's angle on this. There's a great movie called Hoosiers. And there's a line in it. Anybody ever see Hoosiers? Coach Dale, remember him? I know Derek's all over him. We, we, Hoosiers, and it was a great movie. Um, and there's a line in there where Coach Dale is kind of shaking things up, and this kind of country board from Indiana comes in and he goes, You know, Coach, look, there's two kinds of crazy. There's a guy that gets naked and barks at a moon, and the guy that does it in your living room. One you got to do something about. And, and, there's a difference between what goes on outside the church, but when something is within the church, we've got to do something about it. The church is 1 Timothy 3, the pillar and the support of the truth. We have to take a stand. So that's kind of how I feel like we need to orient ourselves in this thing. I'm reasoning from Scripture, and I believe that's what the Bible says. We will never, I will never in this church ever officiate a same-sex marriage. Never will. Unless somebody can come to me and show me in the Bible and convince me from God's Word 
that I'm wrong. But for Christ's sake, I will never shun socially somebody who's in one or being united in one. That is absurd, and that is not what Christ is about. Does everybody get me on this? Anyways, the Bible, God's Word, is true above all else. It's what we consult. That's where we take our stand in these things. Second thing is, and I think this is really a very important thing, God's Word's empowering above all else. It's empowering above all else. It has the power to shape our lives, to transform our lives. Look at Psalm 1. I don't want to get into this more than, than anything. Look at Psalm 1. Look at verses 1 through 3. Let me read, read what we read in our inspiration. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or to sit with the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. In that law he meditates day and night. And that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever they do prospers. Now he kind of gives a picture here of what it's like to be somebody who is building your life around God's word. And the truth therein. He says you're like a tree that's planted by a stream of water. Now, now an oak tree is an awesome, awesome plant. Wouldn't you say? We used to live in a house that had a huge, had three huge oak trees. Enormous oak trees. that shade everything. They rain, they attack you in the fall with acorns falling. You think you're in a gun bite. It was kind of interesting. But, but acorn, oak trees are awesome. And when you think about an oak tree, what a miracle. A little acorn, a little itty acorn burst into this incredible oak tree. And how does that happen? Well, an oak tree has to have something happen for it to become the awesome plant it becomes. And there's a part of it, a taproot, that has to go down. And if an oak tree's taproot goes down and it finds an underground water source, an oak tree will literally drink and take in 100 gallons of water a day. It just soaks in water. And because it soaks in that water, it grows, it grows, its roots go deep. When it, when a tornado comes, it goes, whew, a windy day today. It just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't get knocked over. It produces all kinds of fruits. It just reproduces. It has leaves. And it just becomes a great, mighty thing to behold. Why? Because the taproot is absorbing so much water. It's just absorbing it. And that's the picture God has of you and I. God's desire, God's will, God's thoughts about you and me is that we will be like that. We will be somebody who gets the taproot of our soul immersed in God's Word. And we're soaking in gallons and gallons and gallons every day. And because of it, here's what's happening. Our roots are going down deep. We're getting strong. Life is not knocking us over. And we bear fruit. And we're shady. And we're powerful. 
and we're productive. That is God's will for our life. And let me tell you why that doesn't happen a lot of times. When we grow up, there are a lot of voices that act against God's will and act against that intention in your life. If I told you that God wants you to be fearless and bold and confident and socially secure, and you go, why am I not then? Well, the reason is simple. You've had voices from family, from authority figures, from peers, whatever, that have shaped you differently than that. And what needs to happen, you need a greater voice to shape you differently. God's Word is a greater voice. God's Word is the greater voice. There's a lot of us here, and I know what it's like. Let me struggle with habits, struggle with sins. Maybe it's, it's with the internet. Maybe it's with eating issues. Maybe it's with anger. With other things. And we think, I'll never overcome this. I'll never be any different. This will linger forever. And Jesus taught something really interesting in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 31. He said this, if you continue in my word, you'll prove to be my disciple. And you'll know truth. And what will truth do? Truth will set you free. The context of that phrase, the truth will set you free, is not someone telling you they lied and now you feel better about them. The context is, is you get in God's Word and stay in God's Word. There are certain truths that are going to begin to shape you, inform you. And that shaping and forming is going to liberate you. And so, well, liberate me from what? And as as the conversation goes on, um, Jesus has a conversation with the Jewish leaders. They said, we've never been captive by anything. Uh, What are you talking about? And then Jesus makes this comment. He says, anybody that sins is a slave to that sin. He says, but it doesn't have to be that way forever. And what Jesus is talking about with freedom, it is basically this. The idea that you and I can be captive to sin, but if we continue in God's word, the truth in it can set us free. It can liberate us. It can empower us. In Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12, Paul prays a prayer and he says, I pray you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. What an incredible thing. When I am filling myself up with God's Word, I am strengthening my soul with all power to attain steadfastness and to joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified me Sharing the inheritance of the saints of light. Something dynamic and powerful happens. Supernatural. Everybody say the word supernatural. Supernatural. Listen, there is something supernatural about God's word. Jesus said, my words are life and they're spirit to those who find them. They're not just idle pages on a book. These are the very words of the God who created the world. And they're there to change you and I and and reform us and reshape us into what God wants for our life, not what our culture is trying to make us become. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be pressed into the world's mold for your life. Be transformed 
by renewing your mind and you'll produce the perfect, acceptable will of God for your life. Be transformed. Don't be conformed. Don't live in the mold of defeat. Don't live in the mold of fear. Don't live in the, the mold of, of moral bondage. Don't live in the mold of depression. Don't live in the mold of insecurity. Be transformed into what God wants you to be. God's voice is empowering above all else. What he says about you is more true than what your parents said about you, what your peers say about you, what your authority figures say about you, what your habits say about you. His word is more true. His voice is final. And believe it and live it and great things will happen. God's word is true above all else. It is empowering above all else. And I want to say this last thing here. God's word is essential above all else. God's word is essential above all else. You know, what does the psalm say here in Psalm 1 we read? In his law they what? Meditate day and night. Day and night. Day and night. It is a, it's so important that you and I make a commitment to study, learn, and absorb God's Word. Meditate on it day and night. Be in it. I, I think devotionals are great. I think getting up and reading five, ten minute devotional and thinking, oh, that's really nice, is a great thing. But, but that is not going to produce a powerful, transformed spirituality. It takes time in God's Word to read it, to think about it. And I just encourage you, get a notebook out, read it, think about it, underline, write about it, absorb it, chew it up, be in His Word day and night. Be in His Word day and night. Listen, God wants you to be like a tree, firmly planted, soaking in His Word becoming a dynamic, powerful believer in this life. That's His will for your life. And that happens when God's Word becomes something that's essential to us. Something we got to have. So those are the three ways I just think this idea that Scripture has authority really works in our life today. Number one, it is true above all else. Number two, it is empowering personally above all else. And the third thing, it is essential above all else. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its power, that it is not just idle talk from men that lived 2,000 and 3,000 and 4,000 years ago. It is the very words of God. It is the voice that brought this whole material world into being. Instructing us. Communicating to us what truth really is. And it is also dynamically transforming our souls. Lord, give us grace and give us open eyes to treat it for what it is, the very, very words of God. We love you this morning, and we thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.